Well, this morning, we're continuing in that section of Scripture. It's, it's difficult to say, and I don't know whether we really should, but I think it's okay. Every aspect of the Word of God is absolutely beyond amazing. Would you agree to that? From the first chapter of Genesis to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, the whole revelation that this God, this being who is a community within himself, existing forever, before anything was created, there was nothing anywhere except God. In the community of God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In absolute unity of relationship and fellowship. Needing nothing or no one outside of himself. Being absolutely at peace and in contentment with himself about himself. Being totally, perfectly filled with joy in himself, about himself. And the three persons of this Godhead, each one of them being fully divine in himself. Each one possessing all the attributes of the divinity of God. Or relating to one another. In an atmosphere, if you would, of God kind of love. This is who God is, at least something about him. And yet, incredibly, from all eternity, and you see, eternity, we have to remember, is a created issue by God. Eternity is created when time begins. You do realize that eternity, there is no eternity until God creates it. Everything is now with God. And I know the word says the eternal God, but that's to help us to know something about God's continuing everlasting presence. And then he says, let there be light. And he creates. What a self-giving that this perfect and holy one would, if you would, condescend to create, to have a people in whom he would be manifestedly glorified. And he creates the angels and all the cosmos for the purpose of declaring himself, not for the purpose because of a sinful desire to do that, but for the purpose of a godly, holy, pure, good, truthful desire to declare himself to a creation. It's amazing. Genesis 1-1, for me, is absolutely breathtaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sit down one day and just think about that. 
And so here we are talking about the death of Jesus, the one who speaks forth the creation according to the Father's will. And here he is, this one who is, goes to the cross to die. Because in speaking forth, he knows full well that this creation must be redeemed. But he does it for the greatest reason of all. Which brings me to what we're going to talk about this morning, finally, right? <laughs> Last week, we talked a little bit about the benefits of the cross. What were the three words in John 19.30? It is finished. What does it mean? Completed. Or I like the word, and it is completed, but I also want to make sure we tag onto that word another meaning of teleo, which is the verb there, meaning fulfilled. Fulfilled. Brought to fruition. The work isn't completed just to stop it. It is completed because it has met its goal. That's what tetelestai means. I have met the eternal goal. And so last week, you remember, as to the benefits that accrue to us in the death of Jesus, we talked about the four benefits of his death as it relates to our sin. Propitiation, expiation, redemption, and reconciliation. It's important to get these. And we discuss other issues concerning the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, etc. So last week we emphasized the benefits that accrue to us. But this morning, and we've done this before, but I'm going to do it again because we tend to forget this because we as human beings naturally are so self-centered and it's natural to us. It's unnatural for us to be, not to be self-centered. You do understand that. Not to be self-centered is supernatural. It's not something you and I can do in the energy of our own person. Not to be self-centered is a supernatural work of God. And so we're so self-centered because of this flesh, because of sin, that typically we always put ourselves first and as the object. But what did we say? The entire ministry, which is accentuated at the cross, can be said this way. God is the subject. Jesus is the verb. And we are the object. Remember, subject, verb, direct object. Remember, active and passive and so on. So this morning, what we want to do is... For just a few minutes before we read the resurrection passage, I want to one more time talk about, emphasize whose work is being manifested at the cross and whose work is finished at the cross. Because we are here today, not because Jesus came to do this for us, We are here today because Jesus came to do this for the Father's glory through us and in us. God is the 
subject. Jesus is the verb, and we are the goal or the object. So let's see what we have here. Before we turn our attention to the resurrection, let's once again, and we've done it before, but I want to emphasize it again. Remember that we are not the principal beneficiaries of the finished work of Christ. We are the beneficiaries, but not principally so, secondarily so. <clears throat> so from now on, hopefully, 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 every time we look at the life of Jesus, every time we look at the person of Christ, every time we look at the cross, every time we look at the passion, the suffering, every time we look at the death, we remember this. This is primarily for and about and from God. The great work that Jesus finished, fulfilled, remember completed, fulfilled, and completed at the cross was the display of the glory of the Father's love through his, Jesus' loving submission unto death for the fulfillment of Genesis 1.26, actually for the fulfillment of Genesis 1.1, which is explained in 1.26 as the creation of man, because creation is... Put, to get, put forth for one purpose, to have man as the object of creation in whom God will glorify himself. So listen to the words of Jesus in the last prayer that he prayed before going to Gethsemane. Remember John 17 is a prayer that, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed, and then after that prayer, they crossed the brook Kedron, and he went into the garden of Gethsemane. Only John has this prayer there. He says this, he's talking to the Father. In verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on earth, having what? Accomplished or finished the work that you gave me to do. What is that work that God gave him to do? God gave Jesus the work of saving us because in that work, the glory of the Father would be manifested in the salvation of his people. Therefore, the primary emphasis and the beneficiary of the work of the cross is God. Is God. The primary work of Jesus from his birth to his death was a glorification of the Father. Remember, I have finished it. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work. How did Jesus glorify the Father? By manifesting the Father to his people. Remember John 14, 9. Philip is saying, look, before you go away, could you show us the Father? And Jesus says, look, Philip, have I been with you this long that you asked me? Show me the Father. What does he say? If you have seen. Now, the word seen doesn't mean just physically looking at, but seeing with comprehension and some kind of an understanding and a grasping. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You remember that? John 14, 9 is a very important verse. John 17, 6, following, remember what Jesus said, I've glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work. And here's what Jesus says then in 6, explaining that. How has it, what work, what work was accomplished? I have manifested your name. Remember, John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Notice, I did not manifest your name to everybody on earth. I did not manifest your name. I was seen by everybody. 
But I manifested your name. I manifested your presence. I manifested your character, your nature. I manifested who you are in yourself. This eternal God who is called Father of the Lord Jesus. I manifested your name, your character, your power to only one people. What people is that? God's people. He did not manifest the name of God, the person of the Father, to everybody. So in hopes that seeing and being manifested to everybody, hopefully someone will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, don't you see? I'm going to let everybody know. And in that knowing, I just hope, I'm praying, people will receive me. That's not what's going on here. There is a purposeful and a restrictive manifestation. I'm not going to get to the scripture, am I? There is a purposeful and restricted manifestation. I manifested them what? Your name to the world. In fact, and I think it's, I can't remember the verse. It may be verse 12 or 17. I can be correct. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. So don't you pray that everybody be saved. You pray that God's people will be saved. Well, they will be, yes, but we're still to be praying. Those are the people for whom Jesus came to die. It's kind of a restrictive thing. And, you know, we don't like that because we think everybody should have a fair chance. Well, we do. And then we all fail if we have a chance. Because we're not going to accept. God has to intervene and save a people from the world. In manifesting the Father's name, Jesus was manifesting what? The glory of God's grace, of the grace of God's love for his people. Now, there's a lot in that. We don't have the time to do it. And I don't even know unless the Holy Spirit gave me the ability to have the capability of doing it. But when at least in this context, when I say the glory of God is manifested in the Father's love, I am not in any way forgetting about the other attributes. Well, what about the glory of God's holiness? What about the glory of God's power? What Every attribute of God is fully part or fully rather uh, and the essence of who God is. Every attribute of God is fully the essence of who God is. And so in one attribute is contained every other attribute. And so we don't, I'm not going to list, okay, the hell, we're just going to say the word love because I think it impacts us in a way that we can emotionally and experientially understand it. So we're not leaving out the other attributes. I'm including all the attributes. If I say the word holy, I'm including all the other attributes. If I'm saying the word power, I'm including all the other attributes. Do you get this? That's the way I think. That's the way I'm going to say it. I can't speak for others. And so, manifesting the Father's name was Jesus manifesting the glory of the grace of the Father's love for his people. Ephesians, number one, four through six. In love, the word en is the Greek. It means in the location and by the instrument of. It's the location of love, in the love. And by the instrumentality of his love. It means both. And it can be used both ways. And so we say it both ways. In, his lo- in love, the Father, it says, God, he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? 
What does verse 6 say? Why? Why has he saved us? What does verse 6 say? Does it say what? To the what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why? Why has God done everything he's done? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Beginning in Genesis 1-1. And culminating manifestly in Revelation 22. This means that all that Jesus did in his life and death. May I repeat that word? All. This means that all that Jesus did in his life and in his death was principally for the sake or the benefit of the Father's name as displayed in his loving obedience, which has led to our salvation. It's all about God. He did not come primarily for us. We are here because he came primarily for the Father's glory. Because the Father had determined in all eternity that the display of the glory of his grace would be manifested in his saved people. Correct? Are we getting this? I don't want to go ahead. Are we getting it? Are we having a, a paradigm change from putting ourselves in the center of the cross and placing God the Father in the center of the cross? And we, the recipients of that great work, the Father lovingly sending the Son and the Son lovingly and willingly going to the cross for the Father's glory. The Father loving the Son so much, I will send no one else other than you because I love you so much. You will be the one to do my greatest work. And the Son says, I will lovingly accept and willingly so with great joy. Accept this desire and this, if you would, command, this authorization from my Father because you deserve the greatest love of all. And so I will do that so that my Father may be glorified. Do we see that? And all of that is done as the Holy Spirit participates as the loving Spirit within this relationship, putting it in manifested activity in the cross. From the beginning of conception all the way, but especially at the cross, we see it. Do we see this love? Do we see this? This is the love of God. This is the love that is deposited into our hearts. This morning, Donnie quoted in his prayer from Romans 5. But then 5, 5 says, for the love of God, we also rejoice. because The love of God has been what? Shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. I'm going to say it again. I don't care if I don't go any further. Listen to what it says. It says, the love of God. What does that mean? It is the love that is of God. It is the love that pertains to God. It is the love that comes from God. It is the love that manifests God. It is the love that, I, can't, I don't know how else to say it right now. And so that means that God has deposited his very love. What love specifically as it relates to relationship? It means that God has deposited in us by the Holy Spirit when we were saved. The Father's love for the Son. And the Son's 
love for the Father. That's the love that has been deposited in us, and that is the love with which we are to love God and to love one another. That is not a natural man love. Ours is always and only self-centered love. This love of God is God-centered and God-glorifying. And so when we are to love one another and we are to walk in love and we are to see the fruit of the Spirit, remember Galatians 5.22, which is love, and then you get eight descriptors of that. What does it mean? It doesn't mean, as I've said many times in here, it doesn't mean that God is trying to make you a little more patient. He's trying to make you a little more kind. He's trying to make, that's not what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit is literally overcoming and transforming our natural, self-centered, sinful love, which we cannot help but do. It's like breathing. You can't stop breathing. By his own love into his own love. So that literally the patience of God himself for me as an aspect of his grace, the kindness of God for me, as an aspect of his grace, the faithfulness of God to me as an aspect of his grace, the gentleness of the love of God, you know, to me as an aspect of his grace, the self-controlling of the Holy Spirit, the peace and the joy that God has within himself. These are the aspects of love that he is producing in me and in you for himself and for one another. Amen. This is what it means to be a people of God's love. And hopefully this begins to wash away this self-centered, self-aggrandizing thought that God is making me love better and improving my love. Haven't we all thought that? Come on, come on. Anybody ever thought that? Yes. And it's absolutely the opposite. May I continue? So Jesus, where was I? Oh, came to display the Father's holiness, glory. John 17, again, 1, 2. Very instructive chapter. John 17, again, the prayer of Jesus. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. How has the Father glorified the Son? He's given him authority. Given him authority. Authority to do what? What's the authority for? To give eternal life to your people. Do we see it? It is finished. Jesus has done the work of the Father. That was necessary in order for the Father, the glory of the grace of the Father's love may be deposited in us by the Spirit. And may not only be deposited in us by the Spirit, but may be then transforming us by the same Spirit. Romans 2, 12, rather, 1 and 2. So that on a regular, hopefully, and daily basis... The love of God by the Spirit is at such work in us. Revealing deficiencies of love, our love, and transforming that love into godly love. So that Romans 8.29 is being manifestly, what? Fulfilled. 
He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And what is that image? The love of father for the son and the son's love for the father. That's the love that is displayed at the cross. That's the one that we are to image by the power of the Spirit. That's the transforming work of the Spirit. And so when they see the image of the Son of God in us, the world will know that the Father is God. Amen? That the Son is God. That the Holy Spirit is God. You see, this is the same emphasis that God expresses in Exodus thirty-six twenty-two. Thus saith the Lord. And it's all over the place. You read Ezekiel, there it is. The Lord tells them, let me tell you why I'm saving you and redeeming you and forgiving you and giving you the law and didn't strike you dead when you made that calf and I'm going to continue with me. Let me tell you, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. From the very beginning, throughout the Bible, to the very end, the glory of the Father's grace is the supreme revelation of the Bible as it is manifested and brought forth into reality by the submission of the Son so that in a people that grace may be manifested, right? That's what the Bible's about. Now, let's look at the assembled verses for the resurrection. I may not be able to get through these today, but I think you have them all in your notes. This was somewhat of a daunting task because some of the verses, you're not sure. this. And let me just say this real quickly. I don't think I'm going to get through it, but I, I trust you will read it. Please read it on your own. But let's put it in context. And I know if I do this, I'll lose the time of reading some of it. <clears throat> we typically don't sit down and put ourselves into the context of the scriptural passage. We just read it. But remember the context. We have been with a man for three years. We have been with a man for three years. A man who was unlike any other man. A man who spoke words unlike any other man. We experience the presence and the power and the love of God in this man as we never had experienced God before. And in so doing, we began to experience hope, hope, hope that life, some way, we don't understand, you remember, we're the disciples, but that life is going to be better, that things are going to turn out good, that in fact, 
in the misery of this world, God's kingdom is going to be here. And we're going to be members of the kingdom of God. And we're going to be God's people forever. There's no greater hope than that. Even a, a better job doesn't do that to you. Even living across the lake won't do that to you. And even going to Disney World won't do that to you. Look, think about how these men and these women felt about this man. And then when he goes to the cross, this on that Friday, this is the worst day of all. Everything is shattered. Everything is over. Life no longer is worth living because there's nothing in this life that can even begin to touch what we hope for in this man. Nothing. What, 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 can, be, what can touch what we hope this man would bring us? What can even touch it? Nothing can get near it. And he's dying. And with his death, all of our hope, all of our joy, all of everything is dying in his death. Everything is over. Those three years, the most thrilling, exciting three years of our lives finished what remains how are we going to continue what is life all about this has to have been some of the thought the feelings in these men and women the worst day on earth is Friday and looking at the scriptures We know that Jesus said something about coming back and all. We know that. But there is nothing in the Old Testament that is explicit as to resurrection. There's some resuscitations. People come back from the dead, but they die again. There's nothing in the scriptures that speak to this explicitly. Notice what I said, explicitly. Not implicit, explicit. Let's face it, all of us are rational human beings. And we all know that when a man dies, he cannot come back. Are you with me? When a man dies, I don't care what he said. I don't care what he promised. You can promise and say all you want. This man cannot come back. You realize this is where they are theologically and experientially. Do you see this? We're reading it on the wrong side. We have to read it on their side. There's some glimmer, there's some what, but the reality is, you know, when you really think about it, no, it can't happen. Ricky, it's just, it's finished. Butch, it's over. Greg, it's finished. And he dies. Take him down. And he put him in the tomb, and they roll the rock. It's finished. 
Maybe what he meant by tetelestai is that his life was finished. I did the best I could. It's finished, though. Because, you see, I wasn't able to live long enough to finish what I was doing in the normal way. It's finished. It's over. And for those many hours before the dawning of the first day, think how Mary felt watching her son be slaughtered and butchered. Think about how the apostle Peter felt having denied Jesus thrice. Think about how these other apostles, or uh, rather disciples at that point, felt having abandoned this best of all men. They left him alone to face the cruelty of the cross. And it's over. It's finished. No more hope. What kind of crushing despair must they have felt? I want you to get this. Do you feel it? What kind of crushing despair must they have felt? This is worse than some of the despair that we feel when things don't go well in our lives. Have you ever felt some kind of despair and crushing experience in your own life? Anybody in here? Yes. This is beyond anything else because life itself was hoped for in that man. Nothing else touched it as to the significance of what life is. That's life. That's hope. That's eternity. That's forgiveness. That's joy. Peace. It's all gone. It's finished. And the tomb, the ro- they play in the tomb, and the rock in the tomb. Boom. And once they rolled that rock there, you know why they rolled that rock there? Because it was never meant to be pushed back. That rock was never meant to be re-rolled, you know, rolled out of the way. You didn't bury someone and came back a couple of days, roll the rock away, look in there and shut it. Once the rock was there, it was meant to what? What? Stay there. Once the pharaohs were buried in the pyramids, they were meant to what? Stay there. This was not just an opening door. This is this is final. When that rock came down and went into that little, you know, the depression, whatever, and whoom, hit the ground, <clears throat> honey child, ain't nobody going in. No one's going to move the rock. It's finished. Everything is over. Matthew 28, 1. At least I'll read some of it. Please, we won't get it read all today, but please read it on your own. Would you do that? It's worth reading the compilation of all this. It'll give you a much clearer and better understanding. When the Sabbath was over, that means when sundown is on, the Sabbath is finished. Now the Jews can begin to go about their business, you know, because of the prohibition of work on Sabbath. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. By the way, James may be the brother of Jesus. This may be Mary herself. Salome, Joanna, and the others. There's a troop of women. The men are cowering in the corner. You get it, men? We're shivering in the back of the house. The women are going first. 
and with them brought prepared spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just before the sunrise, the women left the tomb. While the women were on their way to the tomb, there was a, they don't know this, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. The stone is rolled back. And while they were on their way to the tomb, the women asked, hey, we didn't think of this. Who's going to roll the stone away? You see, in their zeal to take care of the finishing touches of the anointing, they didn't even realize, what are we doing? We can't roll back the stone. And there's soldiers there. You know, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they arrived, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. And as they entered the tomb, they saw two angels who looked like men dressed in white robes, sitting down on the right side and on the women were alone. Can you imagine how it felt? These people in those days were already spooky. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water? What did one of the disciples say? Ah, it's a ghost! Didn't they? Ah! Now look, the stone is rolled away. Oh, how, that's a miracle. Two men are sitting in there. Oh, who are you? Who are, where did these, they're frightened. His appearance was like lightning, these men. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Here it is. He has risen. The three most important words before this was, it is finished. Now the three most important words is, He has risen. Do we see it? This triunity of words. Everything of the Old Testament is over, fulfilled. He's risen. The new day is here, which we'll talk about next week. The significance of the resurrection. The new day is here. He's risen. The glorious words What must they have felt? He's risen, what? Just as he told you. Come and see the place where his body lay, where they lay him. Remember, you see, even angels have to remember, remind us, right? Remember? Yeah, no, I don't remember. While he was still with you in Galilee... He said this, the son of man must be delivered over into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise again. Ah, that's right. That's right. He did say that. That's what that meant. We remember him saying it, but you know, it didn't make sense to us. There was no theological category. There was no scriptural category for this. We couldn't place our hand on it. There was no... You know, there was no uh, whatever. This hadn't happened before. This has never happened. That's what it meant. 
So the, where am I? Then the angel said, Matthew, Mark 16, 7, but go quickly and tell his disciples and Peter. Why? You see, Peter's the one who denied him. Not all the script pa- uh, passages have that, but we put this one here because it has Peter. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. He says, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid. Well, why be afraid? He's risen. Are you kidding? This is so new. We, how do you relate to, and all of a sudden in the next passages of Scripture, you're going to see all kinds of running around and confusion and, and whatever. go here Because he said he's alive, but we saw him dead. How can he be alive? We got to go see. And it's kind of a, it's, if you would, it's, it's kind of a mess of people moving with anticipating and excitement, but also with incredulity. Do you know what incredulity means? I don't believe you. How can it be true? How can this be happening? This is nuts. This doesn't happen. This is impossible. So make sure you get, you'll see it, the confusion, the this is not an orderly, let's walk over here and do this, and we see that, let's walk over here. This is chaos. It's chaos. So the woman, women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Peter and John, by the way, we put this in here, probably were not with them for some reason. I'm assuming, we're assuming this because of the way it's written. Again, you know, we just had to make some assumptions, but it's okay. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to him, do not, them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And while the women were on the way, the women are scattering, going back. So while they're running, this is what's happening at the tomb. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Can you imagine what the chief priest? Ah, oh, oh my word, now what do we do? How, how do we deal with a dead man? I mean, you got to get this. Can you imagine the horror of the priest? What do you mean he ain't there no more? What does that mean? And when the chief priests had met the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you ought to say, look, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble because they're going to be killed. So the soldiers took the money, I guess they did, and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day, and it's still going on. You see, Jesus didn't die. He just swooned. They just swoon. I mean, stick a spear in his, you know, in the blood and all. He just swoon. He got revived in there because he was tired, but he got up. And some kind of way, this man who had been beaten half to death and a spear stuck in him and nails, some kind of way he got to that rock and he shoved it out of the way. Man. Maybe he did one of his miracles. It's don't believe that. He married Mary Magdalene. They moved to India. And it's foolishness. It's dribble. Oh, well, we have some papyrus that say this and that. Well, of course. If I 
wrote a, if you wrote a true biography about my life and publish it, fine. But that doesn't mean that Chris over here can't be writing some false things about me at the same time, can it? Does it mean that? No. Knowing you, you're liable to say something about my teeth. <laughs> Look, I'm going to close it here. Please read it. It's worth reading. If you've never read the whole narration in one setting, read it. And do it this way. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you something of the joy and the exuberance and the relief. Because the worst day on earth was Friday. Became Good Friday because of the three words and the revelation after. He is risen. Our worst day has become a good day. Because he's risen. And why has he risen? To continue the proclamation and the manifestation of the glove of the Father, the glory of God's grace, to be placed in his people. Amen. Next week we'll start talking about the resurrection.